is Under the Hood. Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now. This is ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. As much as you and I love sports, we've got to wait because of what's going on with COVID-19. I hope that you and your family are doing well. The first thing is health. Second, we will have our sports back when it's time. I'm glad that you're with us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood here on ESPN 1000. We turn to former Bulls and Clippers coach, friend of the program, Vinny Del Negro. He joins me as we talk some NBA right here on ESPN 1000. Coach, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem, buddy. Hope you and your family are doing well and are, are safe and uh, hope things everyone in Chicago is doing well. It's a tough situation for everybody right now. Yeah. Uh, how about you and, and yours? Arizona, right? Yeah, what's going, what's going on there? Yeah, just um, being smart, um, you know, social distancing and, uh, you know, just doing what the, the medical professionals say. I mean, uh, just trying to do the best we can in, in a tough situation and you know, uh, all the news and all the stories, all the sad things going on out there. It's just uh, tough to swallow, but just hope everyone's safe out there. All the first responders and the medical workers and the doctors and the, uh, all the great people doing so much great work. I just, uh, if we can keep them as safe as possible, then, you know, we're helping out in a small little way. So uh, just a long way to go, but at least we're starting that uh, trajectory, hopefully uh, to get some normalcy back eventually. Absolutely. I want to get your thoughts on some of the storylines around the NBA, including here in Chicago. You know what's going on here with the Bulls. I want mm-hmm. to ask you if you know or have you talked to Arturis Karnaschovas and the type of person he is because he's got an undertaking, taking over a, a big spot with the Chicago Bulls now. Well, you know, Arturis has been, uh, you know, he was in the league office. I know Arturis. I actually played with him for a few months uh, in in Italy years ago. Um, just for, I think it was about two months or something, but great guy, um, been around the league uh, with the Rockets, obviously coming over from Denver, um, you know, knows the international game very well, had a very, um, you know, polished and very successful career in Europe. Um, so he's been on the game for a long time, uh, basically around the world as a player and uh, from a, an executive standpoint around the league um, and with teams. So, you know, um, you know who he surrounds himself with is is obviously uh, very important. You know, he's taken over a situation where um, there hasn't been much success for a while, and um, he's got a lot of young players. Um, so, you know, he's going to have to find a way to continually build on the talent level there, um, package some of those things, and um, continually create uh, um, you know more talent. Uh, and and go and get some free agency and get some balance in the roster. A lot of young players on the team, and you know having young players is good. Um, but if you have too many of them, mistakes beat you at the NBA level. And um, young players need time to develop. Um, but they'll figure out what their core of their team is, um, and they'll move forward. Cody White, uh, the uh, young uh, young guard uh, that's played well uh, in the second half of the season here, uh, last 10, 12, 15 games, really played well. Zach Levine, we know what he can do. He's an explosive player. He could put up big numbers. Markington, Otto Porter, guys like that that have been injured. You know, the Bulls have had to deal with injuries like everybody, but they've had some significant injuries in that aspect. But a lot of young players, um, you know, Wendell Carter Jr. and things. So they have some pieces. Um, but Arturis will, you know, um, evaluate the situation and get the people around him he's comfortable with and then start making decisions and 
um, you know, hopefully uh, they'll continue to build something there from a culture standpoint, from a professional standpoint, and um, the players will feel that, see that, um, and try to continually improve on their roster and improve on the wins and losses that they've obviously accumulated this year, but hopefully better in the future. You know, I, I've been watching this Denver Nuggets team under our tourist coach, and I'm I'm impressed by what they've been able to do because when you watch what how Denver has been built um, through the draft and having uh, international players on that roster making a difference, that says a lot. Because I, I always look at it like this: if you have young players and you if you're at least in the top eight in the playoffs, then you're going someplace. You may not win the championship right away; it might take some time, but at least there is um, a step on the uh, rung on the ladder to be able to continue to move forward. Uh, have you seen that with Arturis, with Denver? What stood out most about his time with the Nuggets? Well, you know, the, the Nuggets, you know, um, you know, are now starting the last few seasons, and exactly what you said, you know, uh, Jamal Murray's a, a heck of a player, and we know how good of a player Jokic is, and, um, you know, they used to have Nurkic, and they traded him, and, you know, then they in free agency, they went and got Millsap, and they started kind of having young guys in their prime and some older guys and a mix on their roster. And once you had that, you had a little bit more balance. You know, when they were really young, um, they kind of struggled. But as they developed and they continually build and made a move here and there, um, whether doing some things positive in the draft or in free agency or developing their talent so they could make positive uh, free agent moves or make trades, and that's what you need. And uh, obviously – um, Denver's been able to do that and had some, you know, consistent success the last few seasons. But it took them time to build that. You know, our tourists isn't going to come in, and no one's going to come in, whether it's a, an executive or a coach or anybody, unless you have the talent base there. And it's going to take him time to evaluate things. And especially now with, you know, the situation this season, it's kind of, it's unfortunate. We'll see how it all pans out, but. Um, it, it would have given some players some extra games under their belt and some development and some time on the court, and those things are always valuable. So, um, you know, he'll evaluate. He'll make his decisions. Um, he'll put, you know, he'll put the staff around him that he feels comfortable with um, that have uh, their different responsibilities, and we'll see how it all comes together. But, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, there's some good young talent in Chicago. Now he just has to continually build on it. Vinny Del Negro with Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. I want you to help me evaluate Zach Levine as a player, Coach, because we see a guy who's 24 years of age. And I remember when he came to the league, went with Minnesota, and we knew that he could score. And every year he got better and better from 10 to 14, 18 points a game, comes to Chicago, and is putting up monster numbers up to 25 points a game when the, the league was postponed. And it's it's so difficult, and this is why I need your help, to evaluate a really good, solid offensive player on a bad team. I mean, on a on a bad team, someone's got to score, right? I get that. But when mm-hmm. it comes to Levine, I see a guy here that play, sometimes has to play a little pissed off sometimes, and I like that because there's an edge there. He's talked about how he doesn't like the idea of losing. And there's a little little red ass there what I like because then he starts even scoring even more so and even more determined with his head down trying to lead the team. What, what, how do you evaluate a player like him? Because there's plenty of those guys in the league that can flourish offensively, do what you want, but yet they still come out with an L because of the rest of the roster sometimes. You know, I, I've always liked Zach Levine. Um, I like I like players that have good bounce to their game. I like players that have a little bit of an edge, like you talked about. I think he has all those things. Uh, he wants to win. 
Um, you know, and a lot of players talk about that, but they don't know what it takes to actually win at that level. Um, statistics can um, be a little bit difficult to kind of look at on a, on a you know on a poor team that's not a playoff team. But I, but I think Zach is such an explosive player. Um, he can put up numbers in bunches. He can do things that you can't teach. Um, and obviously, he needs more talent around him. And I think if there was. Um, he doesn't need to score 25 points a game. I think if you told him he had a need to score 20 points a game and they would win and be a playoff team, I think he'd be fine with that. Um, but he knows he has to put up, obviously, big numbers for them to have any type of chance to win basketball games that the team they have put together now. And, uh, you know, sometimes he's forcing shots. Sometimes his, the, you know, uh, field goal percentage or shoot three-point percentage or things he's doing, he's had to force some things. I think he would find a rhythm and a system that was more consistent for him that was um, kind of built around uh, ball movement and not uh, the things he has to do sometimes. But he's a dynamic player. He's fun to watch. He competes. And like I said, he can win you basketball games. So as a coach, you want him on the floor. And believe me, teams are having to game plan against him because he is that explosive. You're going to watch that uh, Bulls-Jordan documentary when it comes out Sunday? Yeah, I'll watch it for sure. I mean, it'll be exciting, obviously, uh, playing against uh, those teams and knowing how good they were. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, you're talking about one of the great dynasties in all of sports, not just basketball. And, um, you know, uh, I've seen enough Michael Jordan highlights um, in my lifetime, but it's always fun to watch. And, you know, you love the competitiveness. You love the um, not only the success, but the way they went about it. Uh, you know, everyone talks about all the highlights offensively, but defensively with Pippen and Jordan and the things they were to do pressure-wise in the backcourt and disrupt offenses and the things they could do. Um, even now, so, I mean, if they played in today's game, the way teams switch and the way they could do those things, I mean, I think they probably even cause more havoc now with the game, the way it's played with the less physicality and the way they could dominate the defensively. What uh, what are your memories uh, of playing those teams, especially early in your career when you were at uh, Sacramento? Do you, you remember those? Because this was before the yeah, championship. Yeah, I mean, Sacramento, yeah, but mostly in San Antonio. Yeah. I mean, because, uh, you know, we, we had very, very good teams in San Antonio. And, um, you know, the, the consistency, you know, Michael was going to do his thing. You were going to, you know, you were going to have to, you know, guard him. But obviously you're trying to force him to an area to, you know, get help on the baseline where David was. But the, the triangle offense made it difficult because they could isolate him at the elbow or on the box. And once Michael perfected the fadeaway um, on that baseline, he could look at you and just kind of jump over you, um, never mind all the other things he was capable of doing. So his his post-up game, you know, the, the, the things uh, – the footwork is something that doesn't get talked about enough. Michael's footwork was impeccable, especially in the post. Um, his, his able, his, his ability to kind of feel your body, where the pressure was coming from. And the thing that always impressed me most about the great players, and we're talking about the Michael Jordans or the LeBrons or the Kobe's and the guys, the, the, the super guys that I played against or coached against, um, no matter how big the guy you put on them, they could, their footwork and their ability physically to move guys around Guys could be 10, 15, 20 pounds heavier. You try to be physical with them or put bigger guys on those guys. And their footwork and their ability, guys would just bounce off them. I mean, Michael was that way. So uh, Kobe was that way. LeBron's that way. But, you know, Michael was the first one to kind of, I think, to really perfect that. Not with his only his athleticism, his competitiveness, but just his ability 
to want to get better and to dominate in the biggest moments. You know, Michael wanted to come out in the first quarter and dominate and then let the team take care of the second and third quarter. And then if need be, he would come and make the, make the plays in the fourth quarter. And that's what superstars do. They start you off, let the other guys do their thing. And then when, when, they, when it's crunch time, they want the ball. And that's what Michael was best at. Michael also loved the challenge of taking on uh, smaller guards as well. And I, I told I told Legler this coach, I said, I said, you know, at the Cap Center, when you played for the Bullets, you know, Jordan had switched off and uh, and was guarding you and you crossed him over and crumpled him to the ground. And Legler goes, yeah, yeah. I go, yeah. I said, you know, he put up 48 that night, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, Michael could have a bad game and score thirty. I mean, it was just uh, he was that good of a player. Yeah. Uh, Lastly, and I appreciate your time. I just want to, you know, what everything's going on with this pandemic, and there's all these different ideas that's been floated out here through the media. Mm -hmm. You know, even um, Commissioner Silver's just trying to figure things out, Coach. I, I, I'm. I'm so far removed in wondering whether or not the NBA is going to return until we find um, we got we have find either a cure or we got to find a way to to put games back on. But I, I do you foresee the season finishing up anytime this summer or the fall? Just based you know with no fans or being in one place, I, I'm not sure if I I'm starting to doubt every day now that we're going to see the league return based on all the numbers that we're seeing. Well, first thing is is, is I have a tremendous. Uh, not only respect, but confidence in, in the commissioner silver and his whole staff in the NBA. I mean, they're, they're not going to put uh, players in jeopardy. They're not going to put officials in jeopardy. They're not going to put, uh, you know, uh, cameras and t- TV cameras in jeopardy or anybody that's going to be somewhere watching a game if there's no fans or whatever. So the, the health of the players and everybody there is going to be first and foremost. Now, if they can put a system together, whether it's through testing or through, a vaccine eventually or through medicines or through something um, uh, testing or whatever or antibodies they're talking about or all these different things they're testing if there's a way safely to make it happen of course everybody wants that uh, you know obviously the, the players want it the, the league wants it the fans want it we all want it um, but safety's first so if they can figure out a safe way to do it uh, to make sense of it um, to keep the players safe um, the, the, the issue is going to be is timing, how much time we have. Players are going to be out, you know, playing for two, three, four, five, depending how many months it is. They're conditioning. Our players going to be more injured. Everyone's going to be in the same boat. It's going to be a very tight uh, window probably. So um, hopefully they'll give players, a, you know, <laughs> some type of training camp or something, I would think. But maybe the time doesn't permit that. Um, but I think uh, the commissioner will – um, you know, put a, put in his mind safety first, have a litany of things that are most important to not only the safety of the players, uh, you know, health, and, and but physically, mentally, everything involved. Um, everybody wants it to happen, um, but uh, there, there's a lot that goes into it, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of people looking at trying to make this work, but I don't think they'll force it. I think they'll be smart in their decision-making. Vinny, all the best to you and your family, uh, and uh, look forward to seeing uh, what the NBA looks like down the road. I appreciate it as always. Good to talk to you. Be safe and be well, and best to your family. All right, is uh, Vinny Del Negro, former uh, Clippers and uh, Bulls coach, with me here on Under the Hood. Uh, coming up next, speaking of that docu-series that we're going to see starting on Sunday. Wow. Some thoughts from Steve Kerr and Scotty Pippen on The Last Dance. That's next on UTH. 
This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Go! Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Good to talk to Vinny Del Negro, uh, former Bulls and Clippers coach, about his thoughts on Arturis Karnasovas. Um, the new man in charge with the Chicago Bulls. Looking forward to seeing who the next GM is going to be. Uh, speaking of the NBA, some thoughts from Adrian Wojnarowski, uh, who is on his podcast and is always on SportsCenter talking about the stories around the NBA. So a question was asked to Woj, could the draft happen before the season completes? I don't think it is, Greeny. And, you know, I, I reported with Jonathan Gavoni on Friday, you know, that there's a lot of teams and a movement to push back the draft from June 25th uh, to at least August 1st, no sooner than August 1st, and probably later if, if the season does resume. And, and that's regardless now of what happens with restarting the season because teams – they can't do workouts with players. They can't meet them uh, in person. They can't bring them in for workouts. They can't travel to see them play. And they can't get uh, physicals that have medical uh, personnel evaluate players. That's an important part of the draft process. Many teams feel if they can push it back until August, September, uh, there's a better possibility that they could do some of those traditional pre-draft functions and, and be able to make uh, be, be a lot smarter come draft time. So the thoughts there from uh, Adrian Wojnarowski. Again, we don't know when the NBA will return. I I, I don't know if the the draft would be. Uh, what is it, Davis in June? Yeah, it would be in, in June. So who knows? I have no idea how this is all going to go until we find out how we can get on the other side of this curve. Uh, Vincent Goodwill was on with me um, talking about um, what was going on with our, with our Karnasovis and what uh, he can provide for the Chicago Bulls team. Go to the archives of the Underhood podcast and check out my conversation with Vincent Goodwill, who was part of the Chicago Bulls covering the team uh, for NBC Sports Chicago. So check that out. Vince is great with that. But I want to talk to you a little bit about Kerr and Pippen because – they were on with Rachel Nichols on the jump, and they were talking about this documentary that's going to start on Sunday, talking about the um, championship years of the Chicago Bulls, the last dance, that last title, six titles in eight years. So much fun during that time. Curran Pippen talking about the last dance with Rachel Nichols. This team is one. Our leadership is strong, pod is very determined, and it filters down to the rest of the players. And we never let anybody give up. So do you two even remember the first time you met each other or what you thought of each other? Man, I don't want to hear this. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, when I first met him, I was playing against him, obviously. But um, I saw him as just a, you know, a small guy. He was known as a shooter. But, um, you know, he was a lot more than that once I uh, was able to get to know him and we became teammates. I could always rely on this guy to help me get close to a triple-double. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you being nice. That was, that was a good answer. We all know Michael Jordan loved to gamble. Now, we also all know about on Jumbotrons at games, they do those sort of little cartoon races with characters where they'll do which hat is the ball under or yeah. any of those games. And the story is that MJ actually got tipped off by the arena video crew what the answer was going to be ahead of time and then would bet you guys $100 a pop during timeouts. Is this story true? 
That is a true story, but he never betted me. I don't think he betted Steve. Steve's not betting anybody, but he did <laughs> bet. Uh, we used to have a security I sitting at the head of our bench. His name was John Caps. He's now passed away. But Caps would bet Michael every game. The only way Caps would win if he was able to pick the right one. Right. Because if Michael picked, obviously he knew he was going to win. <laughs> but yeah, he probably beat the guy about. You guys are going to be bonded together forever for so many reasons. <laughs> I do want to talk about that final 1998 season, though, that traveling circus craziness. We all know sort of the outward stuff. It really felt like you were going around the country with the Beatles. But for you guys on the inside, what is the story of that 98 team? Well, I mean, it was a special team. That path, that journey, that last three seasons were, it was some of the greatest years of my life. Um, hanging out with these guys, having an opportunity, knowing that it was our last season, we, we really embraced it. We did a lot of things together and Phil made it a lot of fun for us. So, um, you know, some of those memories that you wish you could relive over and over again. Yeah. You know, and Phil called it the last dance before the season even started because we were all free agents after the year ended. But because it was our third straight year trying to win the championship, everybody was exhausted. And that's what I remember, um, just the fatigue. And Dennis was, uh, you know, he was all over the map. You know, he had, yeah. we some days didn't show up for practice. <laughs> we didn't know where he was. And it just felt like the end, and, and but we found a way to, you know, to get it done. Ah, just a sample of some of the stories that we're going to hear from that docuseries. Can't wait for that for The Last Dance on ESPN. That's going to be a lot of fun hearing from Steve Kerr and from Scotty Pippen. Well, we have got Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. If you're a wrestling fan, tell them to come to their favorite listening device because Jim Ross is next. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Wrestling fans, are you ready? This is Tuesday. You people bought a ticket to see me, so shut up. Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood. First of all, Dusty Rhodes, I think what you are is a big, ugly, low-class, redneck goose. That's what I think you are. Yeah, I put it. I know I put it. But I'm most of all, the baddest man around in the world today. Follow the show at WrestlingTWT on Twitter and Instagram. But remember, my fireflies, as always, I'll light the way. And all you have to do is let me in. Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday. The bottom line is, in all my magnificence, you're going to be mine. Here's Jonathan Hood. It is Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. We turn to a uh, friend of the program who has a new book, My Life in the WWE and Beyond, Under the Black Hat, written by Jim Ross, the voice of wrestling, the voice of All Elite Wrestling. And also, you can catch his podcast, Grill and JR, wherever you download your podcast. And Jim Ross joins me here on ESPN 1000. JR, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. I always love it, Jonathan. Good talking to you. 
I, I want to find out before we go into the book and, and um, I want to find out how you and your family are doing throughout this uh, this COVID-19. It's, it's been devastating across the country and the world, has it not? Yeah, it has. Uh, my oldest daughter's father-in-law passed away on Easter Sunday. So my grandchildren are down to one grandpa now, and you're talking to him. So it's, uh, it's indiscriminate. It, it destroys things, this virus, and it's very deadly, obviously. And I hope that people start taking it more seriously. Just, you know, the simplest re- solution, we've heard this. Uh, we've been told this. Stay home. Stay home. Protect yourself. Protect others. Protect your family. So, uh, but it's, it's just challenging. I'm getting a little stir crazy. I haven't flown in about three weeks, I think. And I don't know when I'm going to fly again. I, I'm going to voice over the uh, Moxley Hager uh, no hose bar title match on Wednesday night which I really am excited about, getting back in the saddle a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, we, I, I'm over at my warehouse right now uh, signing books. So I'm, I'm enjoying things. I, I, every day we have a chance, Jonathan, as you well know, buddy, to have a good day or not. And I'm doing everything I can to eliminate all the negatives as best I can and just have good days. So that's my goal. Today I want to have a good day because tomorrows aren't guaranteed. Yeah, a lot of this is part of your book as well that I want to talk to you about. Where where do you place, Jim, the process of writing this book among other challenges that you've had in your life? Well, a, a lot of it was very cathartic, uh, writing about, you know, the I picked up where Slavernocker left off, and it's, so it's just a continuation of my autobiography. But it covers some, a lot more contemporary topics. It covers some things that are... Uh, People are going to have a better recollection of the first book was starting starting to beginning my you know fandom and, and then getting in the wrestling business. Now uh, we this book as you you read it you said the, this weekend mm-hmm. it covers the Monday Night Wars and the Attitude Era, uh, working for Vince as uh, close as I did for a quarter of a century. Um, covers XFL launch original, all those things and uh, the, the most sensitive part of it, obviously is writing about uh, my wife Jan's death in March of 17, and that kind of closed the book. That was our finish. Uh, and uh, so it's got a lot of interesting topics about it, I think, uh, different from the other one. You know, just chronologically, it's just going to be different. So it's a, it was a great exercise. Paul O'Brien is an amazing writer. He's in Ireland, and he and I, uh, we have one more unique uh, techniques. You know, we, we, we talk on the phone. Several times a week, we would uh, we text, we emailed, we did everything we could and uh, to communicate regularly, and so we did that, and I think it turned out pretty good. Jr., you know, it, it is interesting that um, for for you and I as broadcasters, and I've, I've been doing it a long time, just like you have. You know, our egos can get in the way because all we want to do is just do a good job and we want to be able to put our best foot forward, provide for our families. But I mean, being in that spotlight, something that you and I crave, we crave on being on the air, doing a good job and providing, a, you know, painting a picture. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read from page 221 the best, what I think is the best quote in the book. And that is um, talking about Jan. And, and also, by the way, with this book, we're able to l- learn more about Jan than we ever have. Uh, you said, Jan, look me right in the eyes. I wish that you could see yourself as they see you, see you, sweetheart, talking about when the WWE wanted you to work uh, the Sean and Taker match for WrestleMania. The, the key quote for that, Jim, is you can't let your worth rise and fall based on your airtime. Oh, 
Oh, I mean, and, and, and this is why it hit me so hard is because when you have a wife like mine who has said something very similar and then you read it in a book and she says that you can't let your worth rise and fall on based on your airtime. Well, you and I, all we know is just to get on, you know, turn on the, the microphone and, and talk and be able to work hard at it. But she's so right. And my wife is so right when she says the same thing. That, to me, resonated with me more than anything else in this book. Well, thanks. Uh, hey, she was, I always looked at myself uh, kind of a role-playing, a coach's role when I was head of talent relations and managing the roster and, the, and our team doing the recruiting and scouting and signing and all those things. Uh, just, uh, she was the best. She was, mm-hmm. you know, we had, when talents would come through Stanford, you know, they may have a meeting at the tower with Vince and myself or just Vince or just me, whatever. But more, a lot of times, you know, she was cooking dinner for whoever was in town. I remember one very vividly, uh, Big Show came over and she had these uh, eight-inch Italian tiles in her home. And he sat down to eat. And, of course, uh, he was pretty good size at that point in time. And he broke one of her tiles. And she never, she never wavered. It didn't bother her a bit because... Well, we can fix that, and, and and that's how she looked at things. No problem. Just enjoy your dinner, and so uh, and then Austin comes over, and you know we talk half the night and, and reminisce and just shoot the breeze. And you know he hasn't he hasn't done his laundry in a few days because he's been on the road. So guess what? She volunteers to do Stone Cold's laundry at our house. That's just kind of woman she was. She she loved people, and she helped me to see a, a better light in a lot of things. You know, to her, she never saw a half empty glass. Ever. Always half full. Jim Ross with me, Jonathan Hood, on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000. You can purchase this book under the black hat from Jim Ross, wherever you get your books, Amazon and uh, other places to get the book under the black hat with Jim Ross. Uh, I want to find out your, your thoughts about the about Vince McMahon, because uh, my thought on it as a, a fan is this, is that, you know, watching the ebb and flow of your career with the WWE. And I was so happy for you because I was already a Mid-South UWF guy watching you in the NWA and then seeing you get on this stage. It was great. But just, Jim, the reason why that I think that many people say that you're the best of all time in the voice of wrestling is because no one's ever had to endure what you've had to endure in your spot. I mean, there wasn't, I, I, there was never a time where, you know, uh, Gordon Soley or, or Bob Caudle uh, or, you know, or Ed Whalen had to put on, on tights. You know, if, if Soli had to do that, he'd probably look like Mr. Wrestling, too. So it, you didn't want it. No one's ever had to deal with that. And so you had to deal with that. I mean, at the beginning, when Vince wanted you to start wrestling, what was going through your mind? Because that's something that you hadn't done before on a regular basis. Well, I was uncomfortable with it because of a couple of reasons. One, egocentrically, I, I didn't think I'd be very good at it. And I wasn't. Uh, and it was new. Uncharted Waters like this coronavirus. We don't know where it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know when this other, this other journey was going to end as a, as a very weak parallel. Uh, I just didn't have confidence in my ability. I always felt like when I got in the ring, I was kind of like a cow on ice, a little clumsy. Uh, didn't think it made any sense. And, uh, and the other reason was for me to be in a segment on Monday Night Raw, for example, uh, it knocked some other talents uh, who was making a living doing this full time uh, out of the TV time. So uh, that's kind of how I looked at it. But, you know, the sad part about it was for me and, and the was, I mean, it was a good part is that the quarter, the quarter hour ratings 
were, were enough of a of an indicator. But then, Jonathan, they got the minute by minute ratings, and so on the minute by minute ratings, I guess tuning in to see Jr. in their squared circle is kind of like watching a, a NASCAR race, just waiting for the wrecks <laughs> and the crashes. Uh, so but it worked from a rating standpoint, and so I'm thinking, well. You know, if, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it had bombed, I probably wouldn't have to do this again. But it worked. And so then I, I looked at it in a less egocentric way and said, well, I've got to, I'm helping talents get a rub. I'm helping talents, quote, unquote, get over. So just go out and do your job. Whether you'd like that job description or not, it's irrelevant. So we did it quite a bit. And quite frankly, I think at the end of the day, it might have added a little bit to my popularity because people can see my consternation. And see that these are tough situations to be in. Uh, you know, I think Vince has had a good time uh, uh, ribbing me and having fun with that with the Jr. character. But the sad part about that was what bothered me was I never played a character. Well, that was me, and so I took that a little personally from time to time. Probably my fault in that regard. But I didn't want this book to be a hatchet job about Vince. Uh, and it's not, at least that's my opinion. You read it. What do you think? No, I don't think it's a hatchet job. It just tells the story of what you went through. And then on the other side, what Vince meant to you, because he didn't have to go into the ring and talk about, you know, talk about how much um, that he that you mean to the company. Didn't have to say they didn't have to have J.R. Day. Didn't have to have those conversations, you know, how much, how much he was happy about uh, happy about your career. So, no, I don't think it was a hatchet job. I just think that you were transparent in what you went through and then how you were able to come whole with him on the other side. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy, quite frankly. I have great respect for Vance. You know, he, he helped Jen and I make a great living, helped establish our future. It's just too bad that she's not here to enjoy it in that respect. But, you know, I... I, 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 if I needed something today, Jonathan, I got Vince's number, and I know that he would come through if I needed something. And it works both ways. If he needed something from me, I'm loyal. I'm always going to be. I'm loyal to Bill Watts right now. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm loyal to go- people have helped me along the way. I, I, I'm not going to turn my back on them because we have philosophical differences. I tell a lot of sports guys, and you're one of the best sports guys I know, here's a real good easy analogy. I was the offensive coordinator, and I wanted to run the wishbone. Vince was the head coach. He wanted to run the spread. So guess what offense we ran? The damn spread. <laughs> the spread, yeah. So, and so it, sometimes when I didn't get in my way back in some of those earlier years, uh, my impetuousness, uh, I was a little hard to handle sometimes, a little bit of a handful, because I, I believed that my way was the right way. And maybe it was, but it didn't matter because the boss wanted to do something else, and that's what we did. Well, ultimately, your way is the right way, Jim. It's just that he wanted, like you said, he wanted to run a different play. So I I get it. Uh, I'll ask one other thing about Vince. If you are not in that feud with Michael Cole and if you are not in that rap battle, which is just completely embarrassing, you're just so so ridiculous, (laughs) such bad eye-rolling television. Um, But this is Vince, so I'm I'm not surprised um, because you're going to get that from time to time because it's – it's it's him. That's what he he wants to see. If you're not in that feud, if you're not in the rap battle with Michael, is is Vince happy and giddy and proud of you in that moment? Because he says you got it, which meant now you get sports entertainment versus pro wrestling. It seems like it was a breakthrough for him because all you want to do is just do business. Yeah, and all he want to do is get ratings. I, I get that. I understand that. Your boss wants you to get ratings too. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. That's how we're measured. 
quite frankly, you know, sometimes it's not even, it's not fair, but, but that's the way it is. That's the way the game is played. And uh, and so he he was never disappointed in any of my performances. But like I said, if they had not worked and the minute by minutes weren't favorable, then we would have moved on. I thought that we hit the bottom of the barrel trying to have matches with Michael Cole and Jr. because neither one of us are trained. Uh, neither one of us wanted to do it. We weren't emotionally invested in it. We did it because we had to do it. And that's not a great reason to be cast in a role. you got to do it because you have to do it. Uh, nobody asked if we wanted to do it. So I, I don't think that – I felt bad for Michael because all of a sudden Michael becomes this villain. And the last thing you want your play-by-play guy to, to be is your is the villain. He's got to be the honest, upfront, straightforward person that the people can trust, like your local weather guy. You got to trust him, and so uh, uh, and he got. Now he's worked his way out of that, but he was probably a couple of years, maybe more. I don't know uh, that he had to deal with that. It was tough. It was tough for him. And I felt bad for Michael Cole because he had a lot longer career left in him than I did there. So, uh, but nonetheless, we survived it and uh, and moved on. As you said so so eloquently, I've always tried to come out on the other side with a positive take on things. Is under the hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. You're listening to Under the Hood. Get the ESPN Chicago app for podcasts and the live stream from anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Download in the App Store today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Under the Black Cat is uh, written by Jim Ross and Paul O'Brien. Again, wherever you get your books, find Under the Black Cat with Jim Ross. A great, not a good, a great book about life and about love and about passion. And Jim Ross joins me, Jonathan Hood, on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday here on ESPN 1000. JR, what is the, the differences or similarities in Austin Rock and Orton and some of these other wrestlers that you recruited in that great class uh, versus some of the young locker room in AEW? Well, uh, man, that's a good question. It's hard to bundle all those guys together. You know, we had some great classes there. And our team, our talent relations team, uh, with a great Jerry Briscoe involved in recruiting. Jerry Briscoe started recruiting Brock Lesnar when Brock was a junior in college at Minnesota because Brock was a wrestler there, as we all know, for Jay Robinson. And Jay Robinson wrestled with Jerry Briscoe at Oklahoma State. So we had an end there. Uh, and that was a unique story of how we recruited Brock. I wrote, wrote about that in the book. Uh, I think the common denominator, but the only one I can think of, is that they, by and large, all have passion and they want to be a star. You know, uh, Rock knew he was, Rock knew what he wanted to be. He wanted to be the top guy, but he had to go around Austin. And Austin was, knew he was a top guy, but he knew he had to fight off the Rock and all these other guys chasing for that top spot. It's just a matter of, I think, passion. Uh, Jonathan, you know, we got a bunch of kids that have not been to the big game yet. Uh, they're young, 22, 23, 24 years old on AEW uh, that you can see every Wednesday night on uh, TNT at 8, 7 Central. And uh, I think it's that mental thing. Because physically, everybody's going to be different. Everybody should be judged on their own mer- individual merit. But I think attitude and uh, the, mind, the, the, the mind frame. And now the question's going to be, Austin and Rock and all those other guys, Orton, all those guys we signed, Cena, Batista, 
they went the distance. They took it as far as they thought they could take it. And but they had to make a lot of sacrifices, just like a ball player. To get to the big game, you got to make a lot of sacrifices. And quite frankly, uh, I'm not sure yet. You know uh, how 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 if these young kids know that, Jonathan. If I'm, if I'm making any sense, sure. I don't think they understand the journey that they got to be on and stay on and devote themselves to to get to that promised land. So, uh, but I think we got some great kids, and we got a lot of guys that have scores to settle. When Austin came to us in WWE, WWF at the time, he was pissed off at the world. He had not been treated, he thought, fairly. And he had not been uh, given an opportunity, a fair opportunity, to be in the top spot. And that reminds me of John Moxley. John Moxley is the closest thing to Stone Cold that I have seen in wrestling since Stone Cold. Because he Moxley left WWE unfulfilled, unsatisfied, those were his words, and he wanted a, a clean slate and a chance to be the top guy. And right now, John Moxley is the face of AEW, and he's going to be involved in the most important match of his career for us, for sure, on Wednesday night. The reason why I ask that question is because uh, of how revered that that uh, locker room was that you put together, that recruiting class. And I just look at in a lot of those guys coming from Deep South, coming from o, uh, OVW, uh, from Florida Championship Wrestling, and they all come into the mix now, and they are they have become or were WWE superstars. And so then we look at AEW, and I see a lot of these guys from the independents. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's what you talked about, Jim. It's about hunger. I just want to know if that if that locker room's hungry enough. I guess that's got to develop in their gut at some point because that's got to show on television on a regular basis. Every week, I like to see that hunger just like we saw during that Attitude Era of that class you put together. Well, I, I like our chances of accomplishing this. It's just you can't make a definitive statement, yay or nay, until you proceed down the road on the journey. But we got some great young kids there at AEW. I mean, you know, Darby Allen for some reason, Darby Allen has uh, electrified people, and he's like, I say it all the time, he's like a young Jeff Hardy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sammy Guevara, a uh, big-time young kid, 24, 25 years old, reminds me of Eddie Guerrero. But I've been in the business long enough where I'm not comparing them to those people. They remind me of them. when I And that could be, when I talk to Sammy, Sammy's got the same basic attitude, the little chip on his shoulder, that Eddie had. It's, and a lot of these kids are trying to overcome Size. You've been told they're too little to go to WWE. We're not big enough. You're not big enough to be in wrestling. Old school people say you got to be so big. Or you got to draw attention in the airport when you walk through. Blah blah blah. But we got some great young talents. You know, the Moxie, Hager, same deal. Hager's an amazing athlete. He had 30 pins in one season at OU. Set an all-time record for pins. He's an All-American wrestler. He's undefeated in MMA. I know he has the motivation, and I think folks are going to see that on Wednesday night because uh, this is going to be a knockdown dragout. And I can't wait to see it. Uh, but that's, I think we're going to be fine. We just got to get back in the groove, man. We just, this empty arena stuff, uh, you know, all this, the, the things that we're, all, all of us are having to endure, that's a lot more damn important than pro wrestling, let me tell you. Uh, but we got to get back in the groove and get past this virus and get, and, and re- continue to rebuild our momentum, which I thought we were doing quite well uh, until uh, the, the, the virus uh, struck everybody. 
Jim, you write in the book about uh, about AEW making that transition from New Japan Pro Wrestling to AEW, and I, I loved your work in New Japan because I thought you and Josh really meshed very well from the beginning. Actually, it was it was really good, and it was um, it's a different pace because I was not necessarily a big New Japan Wrestling fan, but I got into it because of you, so I was able to watch and understand it a lot better. And so going to uh, to AEW and working with Tony Khan young jittery guy that seems like he knows everything about everything about wrestling in the past uh, what was it like in that first meeting talking to tony khan and which convinced you yeah this could be a good fit for me well i met tony khan singing new japan he and alex marvez alex the great uh, nfl insider for uh sirius xm uh works at gil brandt so how could that be bad mm-hmm. uh but alex and and tony came to San- to long beach for the uh, New Japan presentation on Access TV. We did, we did a, a Saturday and a Sunday show uh, that we broadcast. And uh, that's where I first met Tony. And he had no, we didn't have any talks about him starting a wrestling company. We just talked about wrestling in general. And I realized this mid 30 year old kid, 34, 35, 33, whatever he was at that time, is uh, he, he, could, he was quoting things Jonathan Dye had said. And, and, and at the time I said them, he wasn't even born. He goes back, he watches tapes. He, you know, he, he was an early ECW fan. As a little kid, his dad would take him to ECW. Uh, he, he's just a, a major consumer of the product. And I think this kid's like Rain Man. Tony Khan's a Rain Man because the rest, my God, he's he's got this vision and he's got all this. He's got this it's like a computer in his head about wrestling. And so I knew that. You know, it was a fun weekend to meet him, and then all of a sudden, you know, the my contract's getting ready to come up at WWE, and I had no desire to begin negotiations. I'd done 26 years, and I was happy with it and thankful, but I need to move on. I need to play. I don't want to be that guy that's sitting on the sideline, wearing a visor and a, carrying a clipboard. I want to go on the field and play. And I thought I had a little gas left in the tank. And so uh, Tony worked out a deal very quickly. We had a my uh, agent, Barry Bloom, who has, represents a lot of the wrestlers and two talents, uh, we, that was done in a matter of days. Tony really wanted me to come to work for him to be the voice of his brand because he grew up. I was the voice of his childhood, he told me many times. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was I was very it, – it bailed me out, man. I'm telling you, because I was sitting home I, in 2018. I worked twice. I got booked two times. I worked in New York City to do Raw 25. And Lawler and I sat out in the in, a, in the old arena there for like three hours. We had one three minute match. It was horrible. How how the two voices of Monday Night Raw that that helped earn the biggest ratings in the company's history had nothing more than a three four minute tag match is was beyond me. It was insulting. And then I uh, made the trip to uh, Saudi Saudi number one, and uh, that was quite a big experience. But that's all I did all year. I mean, I got paid. I got every cent I was owed. I mm-hmm. loved that, but I didn't love the isolation. I'd lost my wife. I had no, I needed to do something. And leaving old JR by himself to make his own decisions sometimes is uh, the never ending happy hour. So I had to get around here, man. So yeah. I, I, anyway, that was, so I met Tony and, and I, I've loved this relationship. He is so enthusiastic. You know, he, he returns my text right away. He, he, we, we talk to each other on the phone. You know, I'm a senior advisor there, so I, I consult with him a lot. I give him ideas, give him creative ideas, him and Cody and the other guys. So I'm a part of the team, and I'm the oldest guy on the team, 
I'm a mentor. I'm the old coach that's coming in and the, the, all these young guys who grew up watching my work and listening to my work now get me to call their matches. They think that's a huge deal. And, man, I think it's a huge deal, too, that they think that way. So we, uh, I love it there. I, I love the enthusiasm. It's like going to work with this really cool expansion team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we've got some players that have been the big game. Jericho is amazing. Chris Jericho is the reverend of reinvention. He keeps reinventing, reinventing. So, uh, you know, I, and I, I like our roster. I like bringing in Lance Archer. Big get for us in New Japan. World's largest former quarterback. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Luke Harper uh, comes in. Not Luke Harper now, uh, but him coming in is another veteran that has something to prove. So we've got this unique mix. And maybe the common denominator in the AEW locker room is we have something to prove. And this is our field. This is our team. And here's how we're going to prove it. Uh, Grillin', Grillin', Grillin' JR, the podcast, wherever you download your podcasts. It's always my pleasure, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, buddy. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Our thanks to you for being with us here on ESPN 1000. Our thanks to you for listening. Our thanks to Benny Del Negro and Jim Ross, Earl Bennett, as well as Barry Rosner with his thoughts on the late Jim Fry. Show produced by Sean Davis on the other side of the glass. Let's do this tomorrow between 7 and 10 right here on ESPN 1000. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood.